millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ghost stories and to kick things off this week i need to say thanks to some of our newest patreon subscribers i would like to thank jess h christopher rayburn veronica menezes amy smart tracy tucker glenn clabo jane elijah burnett emily rigby emily campbell alexis edwards and Sophie. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, as was suggested by a listener in my call out for underrated horror films, it is Triangle. Triangle was released in 2009. It has 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb and 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Five friends set sail and their yacht is overturned by a strange and sudden storm. A mysterious ship arrives to rescue them and what happens next cannot be explained. Now look, I think that I'm going to say some things in this review that I feel are going to annoy people and I'm sorry. If what I say annoys you, I am sorry. I don't know if I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to watch this film, but like... Do I think it deserved 80% on Rotten Tomatoes? Absolutely not. Let's get into the likes, which, which is admittedly a bit difficult because I felt like this film really warmed up towards the end. And by the end, I was genuinely shocked and quite enthralled. For the most part in this film, I thought the performances were generally kind of good and believable and I liked the general storyline. It very much has coherence vibes in the way that it presents itself. So a couple of weeks ago I did a film review of the film Coherence where a load of friends go to a dinner party and weird stuff starts happening. This is very very similar except more boaty, more lost at sea than being in somebody's dining room. And from very early on in the film you realise that strange things are happening, something is not right. But also, the characters in the film realise that something isn't right also. So you don't have a period of time where you as the audience are going, oh my God, how can you not see what's happening? You kind of figure it out together as you go along, which is nice. It's nice to feel involved. It is definitely a film that is mind-bendy and you really need to pay attention for it. So... Playing Roller Coaster Tycoon while you were watching the film is not a good idea. I was playing Roller Coaster Tycoon watching the film and I realised, Emma, you can't do both for this one. So I had to turn off Roller Coaster Tycoon, save my park, and then watch the film and give it my full attention to be able to grasp what was going on. And it's really twisty turny. It's it's twisty turny, mind bendy, and I didn't expect the ending, to be honest. I thought it was interesting. It it genuinely shocked me. 
and I wasn't quite sure if what I was watching was real by the end of it and um, I, I like I wasn't expecting it at all so you know props for a good ending however does a good ending a good film make I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it does and I don't want to give too much of the plot away because it's one of those films where it's kind of tricky to talk about without giving it away but you learn from quite early on in the film that you are watching something that is a time slippy mind bendy alternate universe type world so I don't believe that it's given too much away to say that but I got bored of watching the same events play out over and over again from numerous different angles do you know the point was made early on in the film as to what was happening and then it laboured that point for far too long I felt like Jesus am I in an alternate universe watching this film over and over again and somehow I'm able to experience it all. I just, I got to this point where I was thinking, okay, I, I, I get it. I get it. There's there's lots of different universes. Things are happening over and over again. I, I totally, I see that. I get it. I, I understand. But there is a park waiting for me in Roller Coaster Tycoon. To be honest, I think I felt quite frustrated watching this film. And while while I enjoyed the ending, and I thought when we got to the ending, I thought, okay, okay, that was that was good. That was clever. I felt like it just took way too long to get there, you know, like knock an hour off it and call it a day. And I think this film made the mistake of trying to be too clever, to be honest. And I felt like they mention the Greek legend of Sisyphus, which I didn't know anything about. Right. So when I looked it up at the end of the film, the Greek legend of Sisyphus, I was like, "Okay, that's right. Okay, now this all makes sense. And they mention it briefly in the film and there's a reference to the name of the ship being being a reference to this Greek legend of Sisyphus. And one of the characters is like, oh yeah, I, I kind of studied Greek, Greek legends when I was in college or whatever. It's this story of a man who's destined, he is punished to roll a big stone up a hill eternally and the stone would always fall back down again, right? That's, that's the Greek legend of Sisyphus. And I, I sort of was like, okay... I get what you're playing at here, but is it simultaneously too ambiguous and too obvious? And by that, I mean, they make this really obvious statement that clearly is in relation to the events that are happening on the boat. Now, granted, I did have to look it up at the end to kind of reinforce that knowledge. But equally, it's it's kind of, for a lot of people, it might be an obscure reference to a Greek, a Greek myth. So, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know it. Um, maybe maybe that's just me. Maybe people are more up to date with their Greek mythology. But you know, I didn't I didn't know the story. The other thing I think that annoyed me about this film was a lot of the things that happened on the boat were a little bit inconsistent with the narrative that they were trying to weave. I felt like there were things that were unexplained that didn't fit nicely into the roundup at the end. And I felt like we inexplicably were in the same loop over and over again. And the lead character, the protagonist, didn't really have a good reason for the things that she was doing. And there were multiple times during these loops whereby she she could have just said, hey, look, look, here's evidence that things are weird and you need to start listening to me. I'm trying to talk about this film without giving stuff away. Anyway, I just thought it was okay, you know. I didn't think it was that great. 
I'm sorry. The ending? Yeah, it was cool. I thought, wow, wasn't expecting that. But uh, it took a long time to get there. Too long, I would say. And I felt a bit like I was stuck in, in a loop. And I mean, triangle is apparently a reference to the Bermuda Triangle. So there you go. Was it original? Yes. Was it, did it start as sort of an interesting story? Yes. Did it end as an interesting story? Yes. But was the middle long and drawn out and way too complicated? Yeah, probably. I got a bit bored, to be honest. I'm going to give it two and a half stars. I was going to give it three stars, but then I thought people people are going to start taking the mick out of me if I continue to give films three stars. Two and a half stars for the simple reason that a good ending does not a good film make. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Which brings us to our story this week. And the story this week is a listener suggestion. It has been on my listener suggestion list for a very long time. And um, I decided I was going to do it this week and realised, wow, there's not that much information out there about this story, even though it's a relatively famous case. So my information for this episode is adapted from an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. It is season 12, episode 7. Uh, you can get them on Amazon Prime. Um, I don't know. If you, I'm pretty sure you could probably get them other places, but I just happened to see it on Amazon Prime. And the story in that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, if you're unfamiliar with the TV show, is told in the voices of the people who experienced it, in interviews with the people who experienced it. So let's get into it. It's interesting how so many of our stories start with the idyllic house that turns into a nightmare. Maybe it makes the stories more interesting. Maybe it adds a layer of fear. That realisation that these normal people who were just trying to live a normal life suddenly were plunged into a world of fear and torment. Often there is no real explanation and often there is no real resolution. The stories often start with a family who buy their dream home somewhere in the suburbs and everything is fine and picturesque and serene until some dreadful paranormal force wreaks havoc on their lives. Of course, today's story is going to be no different. Sometimes paranormal stories are nothing if not predictable. While today's story involves our quintessential dream home, it also involves somewhat an entire community. Often in these stories the house becomes isolated and the victims often battle whatever entity resides there alone. But in today's story we see the impact on a whole host of people. It's not unheard of for a community to be impacted by some strange or mysterious happening. Take for example 
the Halifax Hum. Yes, that is what it is called, and yes, it is a real thing. Residents in Holmfield in Halifax have been plagued by a mysterious humming noise. It would seem that no one can figure out what the humming noise is or where it came from, but it is deeply impacting the community with people reporting lack of sleep, headaches, painful ears, stress and anxiety being directly caused by the humming. And then there was the Birmingham poltergeist case of 1981. Three houses in particular on Thornton Road were assailed nightly by polished rocks that seemed to rain from the sky. Significant damage was caused to all three houses and despite police surveillance, there was no natural explanation as to what was causing the phenomenon. Yes, there could be an explanation for both of these stories and likely in the case of the Halifax home at least, there will eventually be an explanation. But it just goes to show that every so often a mystery arises that encompasses a whole community. Now some will call it exaggeration, Others will call it mass hysteria, but there are those who will call it a curse. It was the early 1980s and Sam and Judith Haney had just moved into their new home. They had worked hard to get here and were proud to call Newport home. It was a serene and quiet Texas suburb neighbourhood with manicured lawns and perfectly maintained houses. It was considered a good neighbourhood, even an upscale neighbourhood. They hadn't rushed into buying the house as they wanted to ensure the house they bought would be the home that they lived in for the long term. It was what they had always been looking for, a spacious house with a garden that would allow them to build a swimming pool. They had decent neighbours and the area was generally quiet and peaceful. Bliss. When they settled into their new home, they decided that it was time to build the pool. It was something that they had always wanted to eventually have. It would be the perfect thing for the hot Texas summers and the grandkids would love it. They brought the machinery in, ready to get started. And it was this that signalled the beginning of the end for their dream home. It was Sam who opened the door to the man. He had knocked one ordinary afternoon and when Sam opened the door, he felt as though something peculiar was about to happen. Something about the man made him grip the door handle a little bit tighter. There was nothing outwardly strange about the man. He was a nondescript older gentleman who himself seemed almost reluctant to be there. Sam didn't know him and greeted him pleasantly burying the feeling of anxiety that was creeping up inside him. Can I help you? he asked. The man seemed to survey him for a moment. His eyes never left Sam's face as though he was trying to read his thoughts or understand his soul. Sam noticed that his hands were clenching and unclenching into fists, and not in an aggressive way, but in a way that signalled that he, for whatever reason, was also nervous. Both men stood looking at each other for what seemed like an eternity. It was in reality only a few seconds until the man eventually cleared his throat and spoke. I know that you are new here and I know that it's none of my business. But I see that you have some machinery in the garden. Am I right in thinking that you are putting in a pool? 
Sam was somewhat taken aback by the question, by the man's demeanour and his own physical response to him. He thought that there was a much more serious inquiry coming. He told the older gentleman that yes, him and his wife were planning to utilise the spacious garden and put a pool in. And a flash of something passed across the man's face. It wasn't shock or anger, but something more akin to fear and resignation. He looked troubled. Like I said, it's none of my business what you do to your garden, but there's something about this house that you need to know. Please, I know this sounds strange, but you need to come with me to the back garden. There is something I need to show you. Sam was dumbfounded. What did he mean there was something about the house that he needed to know? Despite the fact that this was a wholly unorthodox situation, Sam somehow felt that the man was genuine and that he wanted to help Sam somehow. But he couldn't for the life of him imagine what he could possibly need help with. The man seemed to be uncomfortable in the situation and they made their way to the backyard in complete silence. It's here, the older man said. They had stopped in the backyard and there was nothing there to see. Sam looked around for a moment and then turned to speak to the old man but he had walked off and was picking up a stone from the border of the yard. He walked back to Sam, looked around as though checking his surroundings gave a small nod of approval and then put the stone down in front of him. It's here, he repeated with more finality. I'm sorry, but what's here? I don't understand what you're talking about. Sam was confused and was beginning to wonder if he had read this man all wrong. Perhaps he wasn't this genuine, helpful man. Maybe he wasn't actually as lucid as he seemed. The man eventually answered, but never took his eyes off the stone on the ground in front of him. That's where they are. The graves. You can't build a swimming pool here because you will disturb them. There are two bodies there that I remember, and probably more, but I needed to tell you. I needed to warn you before you started building your swimming pool. He turned to leave then, clearly feeling as though he had said what he had come here to say. Sam spluttered incredulously. What did he mean, graves? Graves like for dead people graves? Why were there graves of two people and maybe more in his new backyard? It didn't make any sense. The man refused to answer any more questions and said that he had done his duty by telling Sam and that was all that he needed to do. It was up to Sam what he did next. Sam was reading, obviously, and that night he lay awake with the strange man's message turning over in his mind. It couldn't be true, could it? But the man was so serious and he seemed so sure. Sam knew that he just couldn't let this go. He knew that he needed to find out one way or the other, and he knew what he needed to do. As the earth crunched beneath the bucket of the backhoe, Sam began to wonder if what he was doing was crazy. But he had to be sure that there weren't graves beneath his backyard, and he was going to be digging a hole for the swimming pool anyway, so it was a win-win situation. He could disprove the old man's theory and get a head start on the pool. As he dug bucketfuls of earth from the ground, he began to suspect that the man was playing some sort of weird prank. 
or that he was confused in some way, which admittedly was sad, but frustrating for Sam, who had been at the receiving end of his deranged ideas. Then he saw it. In the mounds of earth, there sticking out of the remnants of the most recent bucketful, was a large shard of wood. He hopped out of the backhoe and picked it up. It was a large shard of wood and he could see by the grain that it was pine. His heart rate quickened. He stepped down into the hole and began moving the dirt with his hands. If there was a grave here, he didn't want to destroy it with the bucket of the backhoe. There were pine boards. Sam gingerly lifted the pine boards and there was the indentation of a skeleton. He gasped, put the boards back and clambered out of the hole. He raced into the house and called the sheriff. There had to be an official exhumation, of course, and though the bones were brittle enough that many disintegrated when they were touched, there was no doubting that the bones were human remains. And then a second coffin was found, and inside this coffin were the remains of another human, this time with two wedding rings visible on the frail skeleton of the index finger. Judith was devastated. The coroner had handed the rings to her and all she could see were the lives of two souls, intertwined in this life and the next, disturbed by their reckless digging. They had desecrated the graves of these two people, whoever they were. Judith felt that for the dignity of these two souls, they needed to find out who they were and pay them the respect that they deserved. Jasper Norton had been a Newport resident for as long as anyone could remember, so it seemed likely that if anyone had the information that they needed, it would be him. And he did have the information that they needed. Jasper Norton had dug several graves in the Newport area in his youth. They were paupers' graves mostly, and when someone died, the community would band together to try and make the grave digging and the logistics as pain-free as possible. No one really had any money, so they marked the graves as best they could, with rocks and maybe some small fences and markings carved into trees to determine who was buried where. Jasper told Sam and Judith that their home and many others in the neighbourhood had been built on top of the Black Hope Cemetery. The cemetery had been for the black community of Newport, and most of the interred were former slaves. As far as Jasper could recall, the last burial had been in 1939, and as many as 60 people were buried there. Not only did Jasper have this information, but he also knew who was buried in Sam and Judith's back garden. Their names were Betty and Charlie Thomas. They each had been born into slavery and were eventually released. They were married and died in the 1930s. But there was no money to mark their graves and no fanfare for their deaths. And the makeshift grave markers were eventually forgotten. And the fact that the Black Hope Cemetery existed had been wiped from the memory of most. But it had been there. It had existed. And Sam and Judith Haney had dug up their bodies. And now they needed to decide what to do with them. Judith was plagued with guilt about what they had done. They mulled over the options and eventually decided that they would rebury the bodies in the backyard, 
Judith in particular was struggling with the fact that they had moved these people. They had been buried side by side in peace and their graves forgotten, and they had to suffer the indignity of being dug up. They reburied the bodies back in their rightful places and hoped that the bizarre situation was over and done with. Of course, it wasn't. Judith had hoped that the spirits of Betty and Charlie would be able to rest in peace. She had quietly knelt by their newly filled in graves and prayed and apologised for her part in digging them up. It wasn't as though Sam had purposefully dug them up, but there had been a chance that they would be there regardless of how improbable it seemed. One night, not long after they had reburied the Thomases, Judith was lying in bed. She was tossing and turning and just couldn't drop off to sleep. She could feel Sam's deep and steady breathing next to her and was quietly jealous of his ability to sleep like the dead. Judith began to hear a strange noise, a hissing and spitting sound that was not a familiar sound of the night. She listened intently for a while and then sat up in her bed trying to figure out where the sound could be coming from. She looked around the room and noticed that on her shelf there was something that was hissing and sparking. A clock. And not only was it hissing and sparking, but it was emitting an eerie blue glow. Judith stared at it for a while, unsure of what to do, but convincing herself that it must just be faulty. When she got out of bed to check, the clock was not plugged in, and the strange hissing, sparking, and the blue glow ceased. And of course it didn't end there, that was just the beginning. Again, it was Judith who was on the receiving end of the high strangeness. Sam had gone to work the night shift and Judith was at home alone. This wasn't unusual and she was used to being in the house on her own. And as she lay in bed reading her book, she heard the unmistakable sound of the glass sliding door open and then shut. She assumed Sam must have forgotten something and called out to him, but there was no response. She got up and there was no one in the house. Not only this, but the back door was locked. No one had come in or gone out. She was rattled, but convinced herself that she must just be imagining it, that the bizarre couple of weeks that they had had were obviously playing on her mind. The next morning she awoke and Sam was peacefully sleeping beside her. He had finished the night shift, come home and crept into bed. She had just about forgotten the strange sounds of the night before and set about getting dressed. But when she went to her closet, she couldn't find her red shoes anywhere. She searched high and low, and they were nowhere to be found. She knew she had left them in the wardrobe, she knew exactly where they were, but they had disappeared. When Sam awoke, she made him search too, hoping that a fresh pair of eyes would shed light on the matter. But there was still nothing. It was later in the day and Sam was standing at the sink getting a glass of water. Judith? Judith, come here and look at this. He called with a distinct air of urgency in his voice. Are those your shoes? They made their way outside and there on the newly dug grave were Judith's red shoes, sitting neatly beside each other on the fresh earth. Sam? What date is it today? 
she asked quietly, not taking her eyes off the shoes. That day was Betty Thomas's birthday. I think, Judith said quietly, I think that Charlie was giving Betty a birthday present. Sam and Judith were not the only two people in the neighbourhood having these bizarre experiences. And for Ben and Jean Williams, it would prove to be much, much worse. Just like Sam and Judith, Ben and Jean Williams had moved to Newport with a view to settle down and live out their years in a quiet and peaceful neighbourhood. They had chosen the house because it was serene and the neighbours were friendly, and they had enough greenery and space to give them respite from city living. In short, they also believed that they would be blissfully happy living here. But after they moved in, Jean immediately sensed that something wasn't right. She had a constant, unshakable sense of foreboding, this continuous, nagging feeling that something awful was about to happen, that something dark was lurking just out of sight, and it didn't help that no matter what she did in the house, her plants would wither up and die. She would water them correctly, feed them fertiliser that they needed, give them love and sunlight, and no matter what, they still turned black and died. There was one day that Jean was out in the garden. She was pottering about and weeding, because somehow even the paranormal couldn't keep the weeds at bay. She noticed something in the dirt of the flower bed that was beneath her oak tree. As she approached it, she realised that it was an indentation in the dirt. It had sunken into the ground a couple of inches in a very peculiar shape. It was the shape of a coffin. Jean was perplexed but couldn't shake the feeling that this was connected to the constant feeling of foreboding she was experiencing. She called Ben to come and look and he was equally perplexed but pragmatically suggested that the best course of action was to simply fill it in which they did, only for the earth to sink down and reveal the coffin shape once more. And it wasn't just the coffin shape. Jean noticed that there were marks on their big oak tree, and not just random marks. There were two horizontal lines carved into the tree and an arrow. They too needed to speak to some of the longer-term residents of Newport, and what they found horrified them. A man who had lived in Newport for many, many years told them that he had carved those marks in the tree. And the marks on the tree were to represent a gravestone because that was where he had buried his two sisters. It was around this time that both Ben and Jean began to see shadows in their home. The feeling of a foreboding presence intensified and shadows seemed to glide along the walls and the ceilings, never fully in view and always flitting in the corners of their eyes. They felt as though they were being stalked, being hunted in their own home by something that they just couldn't defend themselves from. Ben and Jean weren't the only people living in the house. Their granddaughter, Carly, also lived there and she was not immune to the terror of the presence. She felt cold spots in the house, even during the oppressive heat of the summer. And this was not a feeling of a cold breeze or an air conditioner. This was the feeling of plunging into a pool of ice-cold water that would be accompanied by a feeling of sheer terror, a sense of dread. She never felt alone, 
and felt as though she spent her time in the house looking over her shoulder, expecting to see what lurked in the shadows. The toilets in the house would flush on their own, and one day, she called Jean to the bathroom door. Grandma, listen! Can you hear that? Jean was perplexed. There was nothing to hear. No, Grandma, you need to listen to this. Listen! She gingerly stepped forward into the room and flushed the toilet and hopped back to the door, where she stood half hiding behind the door frame. Listen! She hissed. If Jean had not been standing there, there was no way she would have believed it. As the toilet flushed and the water sloshed and gurgled, there was the sound of something else. The sound of voices. Voices murmuring and whispering. It almost sounded as if there were people in the pipes. It almost sounded as if there were people beneath the house. It had to be the graveyard. Obviously the whole neighbourhood knew about the discovery of the bodies and Judith was not shy of telling the community about her experiences since inadvertently digging up the remains of two people. Jean was not long in coming to the conclusion that they were experiencing these issues because they were living on the remains of at least 60 people. Jean was also convinced that they would in turn not get any peace for as long as they remained in that house. The dead would not rest until peace was restored to their burial place. Ben and Jean talked it over ad nauseum. Should they leave? Could they sell? They didn't have enough money to pay a deposit on a new home. This was meant to be their forever home. But could they be safe and at peace here? And could they willingly pass it on to another unsuspecting family? The answer, for them at least, was no. They wanted to try and fight this unseen force. To beat it somehow. Ben had been working the late shift when it happened, when he finally saw them. He had come home from work at around midnight, and made his way to the fridge to grab a snack and a drink before heading to bed. When he closed the fridge door, he saw them, standing, waiting, watching him, two figures, shadowy and ghostly but not quite solid and definitely there. They turned almost as soon as he saw them and made their way down the hallway and Ben realised in horror, right towards the bedroom where Jean was sleeping soundly. He panicked and sprinted down the hallway to their bedroom and through the door. There they were, standing at the end of the bed, seemingly watching the sleeping Jean. He knew he couldn't allow any harm to come to her and he knew. He felt that they meant her harm. And in a moment of sheer madness, he dove at them, head on, determined to tackle them away from his wife somehow, but he sailed right through them. A sticky, cold sensation and he was lying, dumbfounded on the bed, with Jean's sleepy and confused voice asking him what was wrong. By this point, Judith and Sam had also had enough. They didn't know what else to do and so they sued the builder. They went to court stating that the company that had built their property had failed to disclose that the houses were built on top of a graveyard and that they had suffered severe emotional distress as a direct result of moving into the property. 
A jury found in their favor and they were awarded $142,000 for the anguish they had suffered. But it was not to be a positive end for Sam and Judith. A judge decided that the builders of the property were not liable for the emotional anguish they had suffered and reversed the ruling. Not only was the verdict ruled out, but Sam and Judith were ordered to pay $50,000 in court fees. They had lost everything, including the house. Ben and Jean went on a similar route and again with dire consequences. They decided that they would explore legal action but were told that it was pointless unless there was definitive proof that their house was built on top of a graveyard. And for Jean, this was the final straw. She tore into the garden in a rage, determined that if there were bodies under her house, she was going to find them and show everybody that what they were experiencing was real. Their lives had been turned upside down and she couldn't hack it anymore. As she dug with energy and determination, Jean began to flag. She began to feel unwell. She couldn't see straight, she felt dizzy and weak and her adult daughter Tina put her hand on her mother's arm and told Jean to rest, that she would finish the digging. It is important to say what happened next in Jean's own words and this is taken directly from the Unsolved Mysteries Season 12, Episode 7. I remember her saying that she was, that she felt funny that she was getting dizzy as well. She put the shovel down and she went back inside and she just lay down on the couch. She was like, Mom, Daddy, I don't feel right. There's something wrong. The last thing I remember her saying was, Mommy, take care of my baby. Take care of my baby. And she looked so scared. Almost immediately her eyes started glazing over and I was talking to her, trying to talk her out of dying. Please, Tina, talk to me. And all this time her eyes were changing until they got to the point where I knew that she wasn't responding at all. I realised that I had desecrated another grave and now I am paying. I told Ben, we have to get out of here. It doesn't matter what we lose, what we had. I knew that if we didn't, that I was not going to make it because my fight was gone. And I could fight no more. Jean and Ben Williams had lost their daughter. And they believed that it had happened because they had desecrated a grave. They up and left their cursed home in Newport, and they never went back. Neither Sam and Judith nor Ben and Jean ever reported any other paranormal experiences in their new homes. And no family in that Newport neighbourhood reported any strange happenings either. I just want to say, before I start with my thoughts on this, that there is no mocking the sudden death of a young woman. It's just not something we can joke about. It happened. This poor young woman lost her life. Uh, Jean and Ben Williams' daughter, Tina, she was young. I think she was in her 30s and she died suddenly of a completely unexpected heart attack. And regardless of the circumstances and what the family believe, what the cause of that was, it is just sad and terrible. And they, they have the right to try and cope with it however they can. I don't personally believe that the ghosts of buried former slaves caused the sudden death of their daughter. But 
I understand that it must be terrifying to try and make sense of someone suddenly dying when they're young and full of life and perhaps Ben and Jean Williams just needed to blame somebody to try and understand what had happened. That's all I'm going to say on that part of the story. I don't believe that it was paranormal, the cause of her death. I, but I do believe that it is incredibly tragic and that people will try and cope in whatever way that they can. And obviously it was a massive deal for Jean and Ben Williams to lose their daughter. And it obviously seemed like the end of a terrible fiasco for them. So leaving that aside, let's get into this. There's something about this story that just doesn't sit right with me. And I don't quite know what it is exactly. It's been on my list for ages and ages and ages. So as you guys know, I keep a list of story suggestions and topics, either things that I've found in my travels or things that listeners have suggested in Facebook posts or on Instagram, whatever it is. Keep a list and the Black Hope Curse has been on my list for a really long time. And when I went to look for information about it, I, I the information was surprisingly sparse. So this episode was adapted from the transcript of that Unsolved Mysteries episode. And look, I, I do you know, I just, I just can't quite get my head around what it is about this story that doesn't sit right with me. But I will say that when I was writing it, I was writing it and I was sitting watching Criminal Minds while I was writing it and looking up toilet flushing noises to add to it. And I turned to Nick and I said, you know what, Nick, this might be a new law for the podcast. And he was like, why, what are you doing? Why are you looking up toilet flushing noises? And I was like, well, because because I'm talking about toilet ghosts. I'm talking about hearing voices when you flush the toilet. That's where we are. That's 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 where we are now. That's that's how far we have fallen. And look, we've dealt with a lot of weird things on the podcast. But I don't think we've ever dealt with a toilet ghost outside of Japanese urban legends. And look, who am I to say that the ghosts of long dead residents of that town were not speaking to them through the toilet plumbing who am I to say that that didn't happen but it's definitely not somewhere we've been before it's a turn up for the books ladies and gentlemen and non-binary folk we are we are here talking about toilet ghosts and I, I feel like I probably need to talk about this as if these people really believe that this has happened to them right and I think perhaps maybe we need to consider the fact that these people dug up these two bodies and then all this strange stuff started happening to them. But what really is the strange stuff that happened to them? We've got feelings of dread and we've got um, doors opening at night time that haven't really opened at all and some shoes going missing in the first place. There aren't really that many recorded incidents, apparently, in this story of strange things happening. And repeatedly in this episode of Unsolved Mysteries, both Jean and Judith are interviewed and Sam and Ben as well, I think. And Jean and Judith repeatedly used the word desecrated. They kept saying we desecrated these graves and then this happened to us. We desecrated the graves of these innocent people and then all these awful things happened to us. And actually, like they didn't really desecrate graves. And I think they've sort of misunderstood what desecration of graves is. So like technically, desecration of a grave is to like treat a sacred place or thing with violent disrespect there's an element of of intentionality there and violent disrespect is not the same as digging up a hole in your garden so that you are going to make a swimming pool but some random mysterious man has shown up and said there's bodies in your garden and you're like well I kind of have to make sure and see 
And then you do the right thing and call the sheriff and say, look, we need to check these bodies. Sheriff checks the bodies and you say, well, these people deserve to be buried where we dug them up. That's not desecration. At least, at least by my thinking, that's not desecration. And as for Jean saying, you know, she desecrated this grave when she was angry and she went to dig up the grave to prove that there were bodies. I would imagine that the act of digging furiously in a hole in the Texas summer would be enough to make anybody feel weak and dizzy. Let's be fair. And my question really is, did they bring this story to Unsolved Mysteries? Is it possible that these families, they bought houses in a neighbourhood and thought actually this isn't the neighbourhood that we thought it was or we're uncomfortable with the idea of these houses being buried on graveyard plots, whether they're unmarked graves or not. And maybe thought they'd be able to sue the builders and get some money out of it. I don't know. I'm never one to say, usually, I definitively don't think this is paranormal and I feel like there's more to this story. But in this case, I do feel like there's more to this story. And I think part of it is the the kind of lack of paranormal evidence, you know? Some toilet ghosts, some missing red shoes and some shadowy figures that... Ben dove through and was sticky and cold that description of sticky and cold made me want to get sick a little bit in my mouth for various reasons but those things they aren't really wild paranormal evidence for me it's it's probably not enough evidence that I would sue anybody in court to be honest but one would have to presume that the paranormal evidence wasn't presented in court because it wouldn't be relevant to a court case all you could say I suppose is that you realise that your house is is built on a graveyard and you feel emotionally distressed by that. I don't think you can conceivably say, and also, a ghost stole my shoes. And maybe if they did sort of genuinely, hand on heart, think that it was paranormal, I'm sure guilt had a large part to play on that. If you find out that your house was built on pauper's graves, graves of former slaves who had suffered immensely in their lives and then couldn't afford a burial in a consecrated graveyard and then were buried in a pauper's grave with people using stones and carving on trees as a way of marking where their loved ones had been buried. I think there'd be a lot of guilt that that might come with that, and reasonably so. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you think it sounds a bit rambly or at various times I'm slurring a little bit, it's because I just got my braces redone and my braces are at the back of my teeth and all of the glue is new and it feels really funny and it's making it quite difficult to speak at times. If you would like to send in your own paranormal story, you can send it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can sign up to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And I will say, I never say this about Patreon episodes because I try to be as kind of neutral about Patreon as possible, but this week's episode of Tiny Tales is an absolute oh it's just it's great I loved it it's it's a really good episode just just want to put it out there it's an hour and a half long it's really good my friend is in it and he's a great storyteller and it was just really I'm really excited about it anyway um thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time